they're the nightmare blood-sucking tricksters who will hound you and drain you dry. No, not lawyers. Vampires. Both can be scary. But were the latter once more than just a legend? You're listening to Eddie V's Horror Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We are back in glorious 2022. Happy New Year. I, of course, am Edward Villanova, horror writer, artist, YouTuber, and host of this damn fine podcast. This is episode number 25, the very first episode of the year, and the beginning of season three. I'm kicking off the new season with some changes. First of all, do you hear that? A clearer, richer sound of my voice, the lack of bathroom-esque echo in the recording. Yes, I finally decided to invest some money in getting better audio recording equipment. Better rig, better sound, happier listeners. Hopefully more listeners. At least, that's what the guy at Radio Shack told me. You don't think he was just after a sale, do you? Yeah, anyway, let's talk about some spooky-ass shit, shall we? But before we do that, it wouldn't be a real episode unless I tell you what I'm drinking. And... Today's poison, the poison of the night, is uh, an old friend of the show, Pendleton Whiskey. One of my absolute favorite whiskeys of all time. Definitely my favorite Canadian whiskey of all time. uh, It tastes a lot like uh, a Texas whiskey to me, at least. And uh, it is absolutely delicious. Nice, Nice and smoky. good stuff all right so classically they're cunning they can dominate humans effortlessly sometimes they can't go out during the day sometimes they sleep in coffins sometimes they're even sparkly use immortality to go to high school a million times and get with painfully plain girls who can't act from bella lugosi and max shrek to robert pattinson and count von count we're talking about vampires we all know dracula We all know Nosferatu. We all know Count Chocula. We at least highly suspect Keanu Reeves is a vampire. But where did the legend of the vampire begin? Who was the first person to make them up? We probably won't ever know that. Can we at least get sort of an idea of where this came from? Can we figure out what country and what century the legend first started? Or is there some truth to the vampire myth? Could there still be truth to the vampire myth? What I've found in researching this topic, uh, this is what happens when you start letting your research take you back in time and you're trying to figure out where vampires began. And just when you think you've got it nailed down, you find an even more ancient reference to something that sounds a lot like a vampire and in a different culture in another country and not necessarily one that had anything to do with Eastern Europe, which is where I always thought that vampires originated, or the vampire myth originated. And I mean, I mean, the modern day vampire certainly does. But when there are multiple reports of a similar creature in unrelated countries, it kind of makes you wonder if there's more to this story than just the myth. I described myself on a previous episode as skeptic light, and uh, here's the way I qualify that. I have a lot of faith in the scientific method and people of science, and if the scientific community says something is so, that's a pretty weighty endorsement in my opinion. That being said, I do believe there are things, or at least there could be things, that science can't explain. Or maybe a better way to say that is that science can't explain it yet. Because what is science, after all? It's the scrutiny of human understanding in order to further that understanding. It's a cyclical thing. We want to know something, so we study it. We get some answers, but we also get more questions, so we seek the answers to those questions, which raise more questions, which raise more questions, etc., etc. It's a self-perpetuating thing like that. But all it is is putting a method to the natural curiosity of humans. 
a lot of people talk about science like it's some kind of sentient entity. Well, science says this, or science says that. And people have slogans like, trust science, which I completely agree with. But I think it's important to remember what science is. It's the, it's the testing and analysis of our collective logical understanding. Effectively, science is people. And people can misunderstand things. People can overlook things. And scientists know this. That's why the most well-proven theories in science are still called theories. So, if we extrapolate on that, some things that seem outlandish, like vampires and werewolves and ghosts and zombies, all science can say is that their existence is unlikely. And unlikely is still possible, through one means of reason or another. You'll have to excuse my scratchy throat tonight. I'm just getting over being sick again. Anyway, um, so there was a physicist named Costas Ephemiu. I'm not exactly sure how to say his name, um, but uh, he was a physicist. He, uh, he proved that vampires were mathematically impossible. He supposed that vampires began at one particular incident of note, and we'll discuss shortly, in Serbia in the 1600s. He posited that if one vampire fed once a month, and each person bitten then became a vampire in turn, who then fed once a month, in the span of two and a half years, the entire population of the world would be vampires, according to the Earth's population at the time. You could easily say, well, that disproves vampires then. Case closed. But all that really proves is that if vampires exist, that's not how they work. For every debunk, there can be a pivot to a slightly different theory. Now, that can sound crazy, but it is, in fact, how the scientific method works. You have a hypothesis, and you test it until it's proven wrong. Then you tweak your hypothesis, and you test it again until it's proven wrong. And then you keep tweaking and retesting until you can't prove it wrong anymore. That doesn't mean it's 100% correct and verified true, but it means it has been proven up to the point of our current knowledge and understanding, which increases its viability as a theory. So what keeps us from determining a probable truth from a nonsensical theory that just can't be disproven? Well, I did an episode on the Illuminati where I talk about that exactly. One of my favorite things Carl Sagan ever said had to do with new theories. He said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That little rule of thumb is called the Sagan Standard, and it's a great way to make sure that you don't waste your time thinking about horseshit. What it means is, the more a claim goes against established understanding, the more evidence it requires to back it up in order to prove that it's worth investigating. So my job today is to weigh whether or not the evidence for the existence of vampires is extraordinary enough to outweigh the extraordinary claim that they exist. And I'll weigh in on that at the end. But this is going to be a sort of preponderance of the evidence, to use a legal term. We're not looking to prove or disprove. We won't be able to do that in a day anyway. We're just going to look at the evidence for and against the existence of vampires, or at least their existence at one time, and make a call on whether it's plausible or not. As far as I was able to research, the first vampire creature recorded in history was a creature called the Strix from ancient Rome, circa 760 BCE. So, it's been a minute, you know what I mean? The legends go way back before Eastern Europe in the 1600s. The Strix was a humanoid creature that was able to take the form of a bird of prey, usually an owl. It only came out at night and drank the blood of humans. It also ate people sometimes. The Strix was also believed to have powerful mystical abilities that let it know when people were awake or asleep, and it would know if someone was looking at it. So that fits the bill pretty well for a vampire with maybe a few deviations. If you saw a movie about a Strix, you'd call it a vampire movie, but maybe with a, a unique slant on vampires or something like that. As we go through some of these myths, you're going to see some interesting things line up. The Strix can turn into an owl. The vampires in fiction can often turn into bats, another flighted creature of the night. One of the vampiric legends from South America can turn into snakes, Shape-shifting is a common ability for vampiric creatures, which makes me think of another creature of legend, the skinwalker. 
Now, the term skinwalker is sometimes used interchangeably with the term lycanthrope or werewolf, but they're not actually the same. We'll talk more in depth about them when we have an episode on skinwalkers, but for now, I just want you to keep that similarity in your mind as we go on. So the Strix is, as far as I was able to find, one of the very first, if not the first, mythical creature recorded that sounded similar to a vampire. But there are so many, I mean so, so, so many from around the world, from different points in history. I could use up all the time on this episode just reading off a list of mythical creature names and where they come from. So I'm just going to give you a sample. Just a a little taste, a nibble, if you will, of how many creatures there are that fit the vampire bill. Brazil has the Jaraca, or the Jaracaca, as it's sometimes called in English sources, but I think that's actually uh, a commonly repeated typo. I'm not Brazilian, so I can't say for sure. Um, The Jaraca is a snake demon who can stand upright like a man or transform into a snake. It feeds on blood. It feeds on blood like the Eastern European vampires, but it also drinks the breast milk of nursing mothers, which is kind of, I don't know, extra creepy. Even in human form, they had snake-like faces. So maybe that was Voldemort's deal. You know, maybe he was a Jiraka. If that's the case, many thanks to J.K. Rowling for not having him suck boob milk. That's generally not an okay thing to have in a children's book. So, (laughs) Jirakas can't be killed. So the most common way of disposing of them is to lure them off a cliff or pray until God directs them to fall off a cliff because they're terrible climbers and will eventually stop trying to climb back up. Now that's pretty wild, and a lot of these these are pretty wild, to be honest. In the Caribbean, uh, parts of Central and South America, and even in Louisiana, there's the Lugaroo. The the Lugaroo is more like a witch, having sold her soul to the devil in exchange for power and immortality. This will give her the ability to transform into a wolf-like monster. She must sustain herself by drinking blood. So this is kind of like a vampire, werewolf, and witch all rolled into one. Another crossover of mythical creatures. Again, just take note every time there's a crossover or a similarity like that. We're coming back to all that. So Australia... <clears throat> Australia has the Yarramayahu from Aboriginal lore. It's a vampire that hides in trees, waits for someone to come close enough to the tree, then jumps jumps down on them and sucks their blood. The Yarramayahu can also turn into a giant frog and swallow people whole. Then it'll barf them back up some hours later. Swallowed and barfed out victims will turn into another Yarramayahu. So we have another shape-shifting vampiric creature, and this one can turn others into its own kind. Similar both to werewolves and vampires. Africa <clears throat> has almost too many to name, and some of them some of them are pretty wild. Some of my favorites from Africa are the Asanbosam, which is a short, thin, bald man with iron teeth who lives in trees, just like the Yaramayahu, and jumps down and sucks the blood of anyone who gets too close. The Ramanga is another, and uh, is very similar to Eastern European vampires, but with some interesting differences. The Ramanga is a living human who has fangs for drinking the blood of other humans, and uh, they can change into a bat. They only come out at night, and they have some of the beguiling powers of fictional vampires like Dracula and Osferatu. It's not dead, nor is it immortal. It has an oddly specific lifespan of 515 years. Why that specific number, I wasn't really able to... (laughs) I wasn't able to figure out, but... 515 years. Uh, It's harder to kill than a normal human, but it can be killed. And the spookiest trait of all, not only does it drink blood, it eats toenail clippings, too. Oh, spooky. There are also the you people... What do you mean, you people? That's E-W-E people, like a female sheep, a you. The you people are vampires that turn into fireflies, and they specifically target children. 
I don't really know why they're called that since they don't have anything to do with female sheep as far as I could tell, but I'm no linguistics expert. <coughs> Malaysia has the Penan Penangalan, I think is how you say that. It's sort of like the Lugaru, in backstory at least. A witch who sold her soul to an evil spirit to become irresistibly beautiful. But she has to drink blood to stay looking young and pretty. There's an accused vampire from Eastern Europe who sort of fits this bill named Elizabeth Bathory, and we're going to talk more about her later. In Trinidad, Colombia, and Chile, there are legends of creatures called the Puchin, very similar to the Jiraca of Brazil. These are half-snake, half-humanoid demons who can take the form of both human and snake. Their natural state, again, is that Voldemort snake face. I couldn't find anything that says they drink breast milk, though. This region also has the Sukugant, which is a female demon sort of akin to Succubi, but closer to the Eastern European vampire than the Puchin. They also have the Tunda and the Parasola, which are both vampire-like creatures. All across Asia, there are vampiric creatures that either remove their heads or cut themselves in half of the torso, and their disembodied members fly through the night on bat wings to find victims to drain of blood, like the Japanese Nukabuki and the Manduro and Visayan. I'm sorry, the Manduro and the Visayan Mananangal of the Philippines and Indonesia. India has the Azrapa, Madagascar has the Impundula, another tree-dwelling ambush vampire, and China has one of my absolute favorite iterations of vampires, the Jiangxi, known in the West as the Chinese Hopping Vampire. This is another interesting crossover because these are like a combination of a vampire and a zombie. The idea is that because the body gets rigor mortis after death, the reanimated corpses have trouble moving their joints and they can only hop around using just their ankles to you know, bounce around and find victims. Of course, we know that rigor mortis now subsides after several hours or a few days after death. But I love that little repulsive detail that we see present even today in horror stories from China and Japan. There's a Chinese movie from 1985 called Mr. Vampire. It's a horror comedy about Jiangxi hopping vampires. It's fairly well known among horror heads, so you may have seen it or at least heard of it. But if not, I highly recommend it, especially if you like horror comedy. There are a lot of interesting details about uh, Chinese customs surrounding death and the reverence which uh, the dead are treated with that I found interesting too. Great movie, Mr. Vampire. I think it has two sequels also. I've only ever seen the first one, but... If the others are as good as the first one is, yeah, I'll, I'll need to check those out too at some point. Anyway, I, I, I could go on and on, but you get the picture. There are tons of these legends, and while they can vary pretty drastically from one another, they all share some very similar traits. For one, they're all supernatural. But, uh, you know, what has history taught us about the supernatural? They were just things that we didn't understand yet. They drink blood either from either for sustenance or to power their abilities. In other words, for strength. Breast milk and toenail clippings sometimes as side dishes. It's like with a pizza, I guess, you know. A common trait of humans is to like pizza. A small percentage of humans like wild card toppings like pineapple or anchovies. Vampires drink blood, but boob milk and toenail clippings are the pineapple and anchovies of the vampire world. So anyway. Um, let's see, where was I? All of these creatures have supernatural longevity. Some are immortal, some are invincible, and some live specifically for 515 years. Another very common trait among these legends is that sort of bat face that looks a lot like Nosferatu. If you look at artist renditions or descriptions of these creatures going back centuries, so many of them have this bat-faced appearance. Even the Puchin and the Jiraka that are supposed to have the faces of snakes, they have the same sort of bat-like faces. It's no surprise that in places where snakes are common, people would associate this look with snakes rather than bats. 
but they look very much the same. The beady eyes, the large mouths with the visible fangs, either a flattened or non-existent nose with exposed nostrils, very you know, large pointed ears, which are present in many artistic renditions of the Puchin and the Jiraka, even though snakes are definitely not associated with those big pointy bat-like ears. These creatures are commonly associated with death. Even the Ramanga, which is a living human and not undead, is said to commonly live in graveyards and burial grounds. Most of them can appear as human. Most are shapeshifters who can look like animals, and they're all malevolent. They're, as far as I was able to, to research, there, there is no benevolent form of a vampire myth. So I think you see where I'm going with this. For centuries upon centuries, people from practically every corner of the earth have stories of these very similar creatures. Over time, legends become exaggerated and take on new elements and certain things get assumed or misunderstood and the legend adapts like a long ass game of telephone. If you recall the episode where I talked about flanderization, you can see how uh, we as humans tend to exaggerate traits and elements of stories more and more as time goes on, and we exaggerate the exaggerations more and more until the story of something or someone is almost something completely different entirely. But those core elements remain. What I'm getting at here is that I think it's altogether possible that these legends either originate from one common legend or, possibly, from a singular real-life creature. In fact, I think it's more likely that these legends stem from an actual being rather than a common legend that is purely fictional. As far back and widespread as these legends go, I find it unlikely that a single legend was getting so well circulated almost 800 years BCE. International travel was very restricted, limited to sailors alone, and international communication came through the same means. The entire world wasn't even known to any particular civilization at that time, at least as far as we know. So there, there would have been extremely limited passing of information of any kind, let alone a legend, from one society to another. And expeditions to other lands was usually for a specific purpose. So a random legend of vampiric creatures would have been unlikely to be shared by travelers. And many places were completely isolated with, with no way of communicating with the outside world, and therefore no knowledge of it or its legends. Yet, all of these societies, widespread and largely isolated, they all came up with these nocturnal, humanoid, blood-drinking monsters with teeth and claws that prey on humans and can change at least their appearance, if not their entire forms. What other legendary creature do we know that fits that description? Again, skinwalkers, werewolves, uh, zombies fit that description. Um, the Wendigo even fit the bill according to some mythology. My point is, even certain legends that we, that we often see as something other than vampires, or in the case of werewolves, sort of in opposition to vampires, may come from the legends of a singular, actual creature. This creature may be extinct today, or may simply be incredibly rare or well-hidden. I understand that idea sounds a little out there, but I think we like to think of our world today as being thoroughly studied and well-known, but we forget that there are still places on this planet that no recorded human has ever set foot, like the Star Mountains of Papua New Guinea that can't be studied even from afar. It's nearly constant rainfall, obscures it from satellite view, and even makes the construction of an automated weather station impossible. Or the Bay of Bengal, where... Okay, so people have set foot there, they actually live there, but they've been isolated for generations, refusing visitors to the point of violence. And, uh, you know, that's just one tiny island, but there's also the Vale of Javari in Brazil. That's bigger than the entire country of Australia that can't be explored, again, due to hostile indigenous people who have stayed isolated for all of known history. There are huge tracts of land in Russia and Africa and Mexico that are so inhospitable to humans, no one has ever gone there. They say we know more about space than we do about Earth's oceans. Although, I have to say I'm dubious about that claim since space is 
theoretically infinite and the ocean is decidedly finite. Now, I'm not saying, ooh, vampires could be hiding in these places. Maybe vampires live at the bottom of the ocean with Cthulhu. Now, I may have a screw or two loose, but not that loose. I'm just saying that there, there's a lot about our world that we don't know or understand. And there are species of animal like the Tasmanian tiger, for example, which has long been believed uh, to be extinct. And But now, and every once in a while, we'll find evidence that they might still be around. Yeah, hell, they thought the coelacanth had been extinct for 23 million years, and then boom, all of a sudden, a living specimen was discovered off the south coast of Africa. For hundreds of years, narwhals were believed to be mythical creatures, like the unicorn of the sea. So just because we don't have proof it exists, doesn't mean it doesn't. I mean, in 2010, a group of scientists published a paper acknowledging that the, the chupacabra is probably a real thing, even though no living specimen has ever been discovered. And, you know, it, it's possibly a new species of something or a mutated version of another animal. It's not something supernatural, but it probably exists. So is this the case with vampires? Could they be based on a real creature, but a completely natural one? Now, that's an interesting question. So let's go back to the place where the vampire legends as we know it today begins, in Eastern Europe, specifically Serbia, Romania, Poland, Hungary, right there in and around the Balkans. A lot of these reports started in Serbia in the 1600s, right around the time of the witch hunts in England and the American colonies and the Inquisition. So this was a time of high religious fanaticism and something like a proto-satanic panic, like in the 80s, but more OG. Back when people were getting burned at the stake because they ate too much butter, which was a sign of decadence and therefore a sign of the devil. No joke. So that fear or zeal or a combination of the two, is blamed for this vampire hysteria in Eastern Europe. They were even, uh, there were even vampire trials, much like the witch trials, but uh, they were more sporadic. In America, there was the Great New England Vampire Panic, which went down a lot like the witch trials did. This is where I think some of the modern vampire myths uh, come from. Like being bit by a vampire turns you into a vampire. Like, doesn't that sound like it could have been something from the Salem Witch Trials? Like, if you get witched, you'll become a witch yourself. Or some shit like that. Like, you know, any reason to accuse someone of being a witch? Or, you know, even like as a deterrent to someone claiming someone else bewitched you? Anyway, that's probably why crucifixes are supposed to ward them off. Even a lot of other things that ward off vampires were seen as holy objects at one time. Healing herbs and plants were, were regarded as holy, especially in Eastern Europe. Like garlic with its natural antibiotic and um, antibacterial and immune-boosting properties, it was considered a holy herb. <clears throat> an older superstition was that hanging an aloe vera plant upside down next to a door or window would prevent a vampire from entering. Now, aloe vera also has healing properties, particularly, particularly for skin diseases and burns, and it was considered a holy plant at one time. Of course, holy water is said to ward off vampires. Older legends say holy salt, which is actually what's used to make holy water. <clears throat> In case you didn't know, holy water is made by having a priest bless salt to make holy salt. Then that salt is added to water, and I believe blessed again to make holy water. So holy salt would also ward off vampires. That sort of got altered over time to salt warding off all sorts of things like ghosts and demons and pouring salt barriers around a house or a room to keep supernatural baddies from coming in, all that, you know, the salt circles. Another sort of archaic way of warding off vampires was with honey, because vamps hate getting sticky, <laughs> but also since honey has some healing properties, like it can help with digestive issues and seasonal, seasonal allergies, it too was considered a holy thing at one time or it had some sort of holy essence, if you will. And uh, the most obvious thing, of course, is that image of the cross of Christ can hold a vampire at bay. So there's clearly 
a vibe here of vampires being not just harmful or dangerous, but that they're specifically evil in the religious sense, even more specifically in a Judeo-Christian sense, as in they're in league with Satan or demons or they are demons or something like that. So there is a supernatural element being ascribed to vampires here, but could it be something natural that's simply misunderstood? Or are they actually something that science can't explain? I mean, I don't have an answer for that. It's, it's just something to think about. One thing that certainly speaks to them being truly supernatural is the body of writing done on vampires all across Eastern Europe. <clears throat> Not works of fiction, of course, but papers written by clergy, <clears throat> doctors, politicians, even soldiers. There was a Catholic monk called Don Antoine Augustine Calmet, who was a sort of vampire documentarian in the 1700s. He was known as the Black Monk for his dedication to the study of vampirism. Calmet, as his name would imply, was French, and uh, there were no reports of vampires in France at the time, so he had to travel to Germany and Hungary and Serbia and Poland, and all the places vampire reports were common in order to study them. Now, you know, who's to say whether this was truly his goal or not? But Calme's stated intent was to find out whether there was any merit to those reports or if it was just all hysterical nonsense. Well, as you can probably judge by his being dubbed the Black Monk, he came to the conclusion that vampires were indeed real and presented a real threat. He wrote accounts from fellow clergymen of encounters with vampires, of doctors who attempted to treat wounds inflicted by vampires, and of soldiers and of soldiers who claimed to have been in combat against vampires. How interesting is that? It should be noted, although, that the vampires he writes about aren't these debonair aristocratic types like Count Dracula or any of the theatrical depictions of vampires. They're described as appearing as humans, but behaving like animals, a sort of feral human, although in small rural communities they were recognized as people they'd known in life. He writes that these creatures attack stealthily, but wildly, not only with teeth and claws, but with knives or, or improvised weapons like rocks and spears. Blood was sucked from the wounds, and uh, unless stopped, the vampire would drain the victim completely of blood until the corpse was left without a single drop left in it. So I guess it left a husk of human jerky behind. People who survived the attack but died later would turn into vampires themselves and rise from their graves to feed on the living. Of course, that uh, has been proven mathematically impossible. But uh, Calme records one particular incident in the town of Medveda in southeast Serbia involving a Serbian soldier called Arnold Paol. Paol had recently died, but months prior had returned from fighting in Kosovo. He told stories of being hunted and tormented nightly by a vampire while stationed there, and that he'd been injured multiple times fighting it off. He described the creature in a somewhat uncommon way for Eastern Europe, but common to nearly everywhere else in the world. The vampire was thin, with grayed skin like a corpse, and a hideous face with long ears, pointed teeth, and small black eyes. In other words, like a bat. Pale returned home to Medveda, where he eventually died of the wounds supposedly inflicted on him by a vampire. Days after his death, strange attacks started happening in and around Medveda. Over 40 days, a total of 17 people were killed in what was presumed to be a vampire attack, and several others were wounded. Remembering Pale's account of being attacked by a vampire, they dug up his corpse to see if he'd become a vampire himself. Despite being dead for a month and a half, they found his body looking pretty healthy and undecomposed. His cheeks were rosy, and he looked like he'd gained weight. His body wasn't stiff, and there was fresh blood around his nose and mouth, coming out of his eyes and ears, and his clothes and the inside of the coffin were covered in uncoagulated blood. Of course, we know that rigor mortis isn't permanent, and even though blood does coagulate after death, it doesn't actually always stay that way it can liquefy again under the right conditions. So, convinced that Pale's reanimated corpse was the cause of the murders, they drove a stake through his heart, and the people of Mevida gasped in horror. 
to hear the dead body of Arnold Pale groan as the stake was driven into him. Again, of course, our modern understanding of what happens to the body post-mortem takes the shock out of the scenario. A decomposing body produces gas. This is why Pale looked like he'd gained weight. It's also why it sounded like he groaned. In putting pressure on his body to stake his heart, they forced trapped gases over his vocal cords, producing the sound of a groan. So, it's clear that not all of the accounts from this time can can really be taken seriously. They have to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt because there was a lot of um, there was a lot of assumption going on. But uh, there were other cases very similar to Pale's, even in America in 1892 in Exeter, Rhode Island. Uh, there's the infamous vampire incident of the recently deceased body of 19-year-old Mercy Brown. Mercy Brown was exhumed to end her perceived blood drinking spree. Her family members and eventually other Exeter residents started getting weak, feeling anemic, and woke in the night with blood in their mouths. Of course, the good people of Exeter did what anyone would do in the face of a mysterious illness. Blame a dead teenager. They presumed that Mercy must have resurrected as a vampire and was feeding off her family and former neighbors. We know that the symptoms in the people of Exeter were actually the symptoms of tuberculosis. But Exeter cried vampire. So they dug her up and found her much like Arnold Payol, rosy, fat and bloody, so they doubled down on their logical decision-making and staked her dead body to re-kill it. But just in case that wasn't enough, they also cut her open and ripped her heart out. Uh, and in case that wasn't enough, they set her heart on fire and burned it until there was nothing but ashes left. And then in case that wasn't enough, they mixed the ashes with water and made her brother drink them. Can you imagine that? Like, this kid is dying of tuberculosis and his neighbors are like, Hey kid, quit coughing and drink your sister. <laughs> I mean, people were assholes back then. <laughs> I mean, people are assholes now, too, but at least we're not forcing sick kids to drink their dead siblings. Anyway, Mercy Brown, the Mercy Brown incident happened at the end of a rash of vampire reports. And I do think it's interesting that when these things pop up, it's never an isolated incident. There's always a rash of disappearances and murders that lead people to think it's vampires. There was one such rash of reports going on when royal serial killer Elizabeth Bathory, Countess of Hungary, was accused of being a vampire. Only she wasn't dead. Other than the OG vamp himself, Vlad Dracul, Elizabeth Bathory was probably the most vampire-like person ever accused of being a vampire. You know, in the modern sense, I mean, she was a wealthy debonair aristocrat. She was also a horrifying garbage human. Like if you've watched the TV show um, American Horror Story, you may already be familiar with the things Elizabeth Bathory did, although the show transposed Countess Bathory's crimes onto another aristocratic serial killer, Madame Marie Delphine Lalaurie from 19th century New Orleans, played by Kathy Bates on the show. They depict Lalaurie painting her face with the blood of the babies of her slaves, believing they would make her look young and beautiful. I guess playing on the old adage that black don't crack. Madame Lalaurie was a sadistic piece of shit who enjoyed torturing her slaves, often to death, but she did it out of sheer hatred as best as history can tell, not as part of a beauty regimen. Countess Bathory, on the other hand, used the blood of her victims as cosmetics. She bathed in their blood and drank their blood. There are unconfirmed reports of her eating babies, but who knows if that's embellished or not. She confessed to everything else in her diary. But Bathory was a fan of torture, like Madame Lalaurie. She preyed on the children of lesser nobles. All of her victims were pretty teenage girls and a few preteens. They were shackled and either cut with knives or stabbed with needles uh, to harvest blood over time so the Countess could drink it or use it as makeup. When she was feeling especially decadent, she would bleed one to death so she could take a bath in the blood. She was eventually found out and imprisoned, and she died of reasons unknown during her imprisonment uh, awaiting trial after complaining about having cold hands one day. Those who believe that she was a vampire think that it was because that she went into a state of torpor, if uh, you're familiar with Vampire the Masquerade, um, 
it's a state of just sort of a vampire going into into like hibernation that appears as death. And they think that she went into this state because she'd been cut off from her supply of blood. But being a suspected vampire, the residents of the town she died in refused to have her buried there. And we don't actually know what happened to her body after that. It was allegedly transported to her place of birth, a town called... I'm not exactly sure how to say this. Uh, Sejet, maybe? I'm not sure. It's C-S-E-J-T. Um, anyway, I, I have no idea how to say that, but... Um, that's where they took her, but there's no record of her interment there. So that is apparently lost to history. So one of the things I noticed in researching vampire mythology is that the older legends almost always describe vampires as this feral, monstrous thing that's only vaguely human-like, human in shape only, and even then just an approximation of a human shape. Then you have these much more human vampires in Eastern Europe and eventually in North America, and uh, they're human to the point of being identified as actual people who are known to be deceased. Now, given the way that this era was, it could be like the witch trials, right? There were no witches. It was all just hysteria and wild accusations and rash actions. And this could just be another iteration of a similar hysteria. Maybe something was happening that they didn't understand and they blew it out of proportion. And that's what the skeptic in me says. Uh, the part of me that's willing to entertain that science can't explain this says that maybe two different things are actually going on here. When you research Eastern European vampires specifically, you'll continuously run across the term revenant. So I'd heard this term before, and I thought it was just a term for someone or something that was thought to be dead, and it turned out to still be alive. Uh, in another context, I thought it was either a type of ghost or maybe just an archaic word for a ghost. But if you follow the roots of this term back, it used to mean something akin to a zombie, but not quite. At least, not how we think of them. The term comes from the French word revenir, which just means to come back or one who returns. Older folklore from all over Europe predating the first ports of the, the Serbian vampire or Upir outbreaks by about 600 years are stories of revenants. These stories almost sound like zombies at first, and then they don't. So after somebody dies, up to a year post-burial, certain people reportedly dug their way out of graves and were witnessed by the living. Many times these encounters were violent and revenants ended up killing those who they encountered. Other times they would silently follow the living. In some cases they would actually find someone they knew in life and would follow them wherever they went, tormenting the person with their presence. Many of the revenants would supposedly speak to the living, sometimes in an accusatory way like, Ooh, I'm dead because you were an asshole. That sort of... <laughs> like a, a, a ghost, but like in the flesh. But the ones that could talk, there was something different about them. Like they only spoke nonsense or they only used super rudimentary language. And they weren't like the, the voodoo zombies, which were either still alive or only very recently dead, like within hours. Um, these were, for the most part, described as being in various stages of decomposition depending on how long the person had been dead. According to legend, killing a revenant would only result in the corpse reanimating again after a few hours and continuing to be a menace. The only way to put down a revenant for good was to stake it to the ground inside the grave so it wouldn't be able to get back up. And eventually it would give up uh, trying to come back and would accept that it was dead. Obviously, that sounds extremely similar to how you put down a vampire with a wooden stake. Even today, as recently as 1990, there was a suspected vampire in Romania who was buried in the ground, and they drove a stake not directly through the corpse's heart, but through the lid of the coffin, uh, through the body, and through the bottom of the coffin and into the ground. I mean, that would definitely discourage any attempted resurrection. As a side note, um, there are a few instances of a revenant returning from the grave within a few days of burial and still looking perfectly alive, still able to talk like a normal person, and even ended up resuming their daily lives until they died a second time sometime later. I, I chalk those cases up to premature burial, 
which was shockingly common in the old days. People got disinterred fairly often back then um, for various reasons. Sometimes someone was buried with something that it turned out uh, didn't belong to them or you know, something like that. Uh, and they would find scratch marks in the coffin lids where people tried to get out, but they died of suffocation before they were able to get free. In fact, for a while, and famously in the American Old West, people were buried in safety coffins. Now, there were a few different designs, but a popular one was invented by this guy called uh, Johann Tarberger. Tarberger's safety coffin was a coffin with a hole in it and a string. The string was attached to a bell on a post above the ground, and if someone woke up from a coma or something and they were buried, they could pull the string to ring the bell, and people would come running and dig them back up. If you ever read uh, The Great Train Robbery by Michael Crichton or seen the 1978 film based on it, a Tarberger-style safety coffin is depicted in the story. I guess you could describe the zombies that talk nonsense to premature burials where oxygen deprivation caused brain damage. And that's actually the suspected cause of some of the real zombie encounters in Haiti, uh, that they were actually buried prematurely but dug their way out, but you know, cerebral hypoxia sort of reduced them to this zombie-like state. So, you know, that's another tie to zombies, and maybe even a tie to ghosts. That makes me think that a lot of these legends either all came from one legend, or, you know, that was repeated over and over by different cultures for generations. Um, you know, that different cultures, they had their own version, and that version changed over time, or that the legends were all based on one actual thing or maybe two actual things, the human vampire and the bat-like vampire. But then again, the bat-like vampires could usually take on human form because they were shapeshifters. So that still means that they could be the same thing. Vampires share traits with revenants, skinwalkers, zombies, ghosts, werewolves. You know, I mean, we have all these legends that when you really boil them down and remove any sort of backstory to them, and you just look at the traits themselves, they're pretty similar, and they could all be describing the same thing. Okay, I think that's enough rambling and rabbit holes. I'm ready to apply the second standard. Is the evidence extraordinary enough to support the extraordinary claim? I would say that there is sufficient evidence to support the existence of some sort of creature that was not understood. Um, maybe this was a humanoid animal of some kind, or maybe they were actually people with some sort of disease or mental derangement, and that maybe that was somehow connected to being buried prematurely. Maybe it was something like the Ophiocordyceps fungus, the, what they call the zombie fungus, the fungus that hijacks ants and makes their dead bodies walk around and climb stuff so they can release spores. Um, you know, it's that, it's... That's something that's been tossed around as a possibility uh, a lot recently, the possibility that some variant of cordyceps fungus could affect humans. If you've played The Last of Us, the video game The Last of Us, that's what the clickers are. They're based on that theory. And honestly, that's not an insane hypothesis. You know, if zombie ants are real, maybe zombie humans could be real too. Uh, if a fungus is to blame, then maybe being buried underground in a cheaply made coffin is how the fungus is introduced to the corpse. Maybe that's why it doesn't really happen in the developed world anymore, because we're so obsessed with pumping corpses full of preservatives and sealing them in for freshness with our super durable airtight caskets. So, you know, it may be a stretch, but I'll say natural cause vampires are perfectly plausible. I think it's going a bit far to say that sufficient evidence exists that's, that a supernatural creature like what we think of today as a vampire could be the source of these legends. I think that claim is more extraordinary than the evidence to support it. I'm not saying I know for a fact that there isn't something about this that can't be explained by science. Like I said, I'm open to the idea of the existence of the paranormal, but at this point, at this level, of existing evidence, I don't think that we're there yet. You know, there's not enough for me to entertain and everything you know is wrong scenario. Don't get me wrong, there are some weird things about this. The prevalence of the myth itself, the common bat face trait, 
the association of these creatures with death, and specifically rising from the dead, the common trait of shape-shifting. But you know, while I, I really do think that something like a vampire may have once existed, you can't discount the proclivity of humans to exaggerate and make assumptions about things that we don't fully understand. And uh, you, know, you take into account the fact that these legends get passed down from generation to generation with a lot of, um, <clears throat> a lot of these myths going back thousands of years. That's a lot of retelling. Again, that's like you know, a game of telephone. The longer it goes on and the more people the story has to filter through, the further from the original story it becomes. Purple Monkey Dishwasher. I think that's why the versions of this story vary so widely from country to country. Each society flavors it with their own culture. And that's why I think so many mythical creatures may have actually come from one thing. The story of the Revenant particularly stands out to me. I could see that being a thing, you know, especially with that cordyceps hypothesis. I could easily imagine that spawning all sorts of myths and legends. <clears throat> so I guess my ruling here is that I think vampires are plausible, but as a toned-down version of the myth. If you have ideas about what could have started the vampire myth, or you think that there is better evidence to support them, or if you think I'm full of shit and you want to call me out and tell me how dumb I am for thinking vampires might be real, please drop me a message on my website, edwardvillanova.com contact, or message me on Facebook or Twitter. I'd love to hear more vampire theories. I'm going to do a few more episodes like these. I have one about zombies planned for sure, and uh, maybe one about ghosts too. Violet will uh, join me for those. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am glad you tuned in and listened to me talk about vampires for an hour or however long it's been. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you're having a great 2022. I know it's only February, but hey, I'm optimistic. Here's a final scary thought. What if it's not just 2022? What if it's 2022, the sequel to 2020? <laughs> And with that terrifying contemplation, thanks for listening, my fellow horrorheads. Make this year a good one. And as always, stay creepy. Thanks for listening. To read some of my stories, see my artwork, and find links to my videos and podcasts, visit my website at edwardvillanova.com. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, a work of horror you'd like to hear reviewed, or to submit a true account or short horror story, send me a message at edwardvillanova.com contact or on the Eddie V's Horror Show Facebook page. To shop horror fan merch designed by yours truly, go to edwardvillanova.com and click on the shop link. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, please consider rating and reviewing my podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. The positive, high-star reviews really help me out. If you really like what you're hearing here, please consider giving to my Patreon. The range of benefits include everything from personalized content to free merch and so much more. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash edwardvillanova. Lastly, you can follow me on Twitter at edwardvillanova.